It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, November 16th, 2021. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Broadcasting from Hollywood, Florida, the Hard Rock, ahead of the Patriot Awards. Tomorrow on Fox Nation, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream live, foxnation.com. An encore presentation Sunday evening on Fox News Channel will be coming to you live from this venue today for all three hours live and again tomorrow for all three hours live. And we have quite a lineup for you each day. Today, we have two U.S. senators on the program, one of whom is coming up minutes from now. Later this hour, though, Mark Thiessen will be here. Pete Hegseth, who's emceeing the Patriot Awards tomorrow night, he will join me in studio, our makeshift studio, here at the Hard Rock. We'll be face-to-face in the next hour. Julio Rosas, my colleague at townhall.com, is live in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We are on verdict watch in the Rittenhouse trial. He's been covering all of it. We'll get the latest on that front. And in our final hour, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, a Republican, she will be here. Fox News alert as we get going. Let's bring you stats on COVID as we do every day. The case count in the United States, 47.1 million. That's all in over the course of the pandemic. That's a lowball estimate with experts saying the true number is much higher. The death toll, people dying of or with COVID in the United States over the last 19 months or so, 763,178. The Dow is up 126 points at this hour, currently trading at 36,213. And we will bring you the final number at the close when we begin our next hour here on The Guy Benson Show. For now, we are thrilled to welcome back to the program U.S. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah. He joins us now. Senator Romney, thank you so much for being here. Happy to join you, Guy. So, Senator, I want to start with yesterday's bill signing. You were one of the Republicans who attended at the White House. You were one of the Republican senators who voted in favor of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. From a Republican or a conservative perspective, you're a fiscal conservative. What are your thoughts behind some of the anger among many conservative Republican voters who are upset with Republicans who voted in favor of this. I think, oh, you're handing a victory to President Biden. In the House, they were giving Pelosi the votes that she needed when they were in a real pickle, potentially on the whip count. What would you say to those critics? Why do you feel like this bill was worthy of bipartisan support and your support in particular? Well, first of all, it was half as much spending on physical infrastructure as President Biden originally proposed. Uh, so we uh, we cut back dramatically what he wanted. Number two, it took physical infrastructure away from his other bill, which is the uh, you know, if you will, the BBB program, which is to to uh, dramatically increase spending on social programs. So in some respects, we took the sweetness away from his overall bill, and I think made it harder for him to get his BBB 
deep program through. I certainly hope so. And of course, most importantly, uh, you know, it allows us to uh, deal with some of the infrastructure needs that we have. There are a lot of states like mine that are growing fast that need some help on highways and bridges and, and uh, internet and so forth. So we're, we're it, it, overall, it's good for America. Yeah, you know, I, I agree that, that Democrats will get some credit for it, as Republicans will. But um, it's, uh, in my opinion, this is good for us and bad for the Democrats. So let's focus on that analysis, because I was sort of take it or leave it on the infrastructure bill. I saw both sides of the argument. I did not come on the air and rage against Republicans who thought it was a good idea. I wasn't fully disagreeing either with those who voted no. I could understand why Republicans might be split on this. And I think it's okay to sort of see both sides. I was a bit uncomfortable seeing these 13 House Republicans hand every vote needed for Speaker Pelosi to get this through in the lower chamber. However, and I made this point the very next day, and this goes to what you just argued, Senator, what the progressives wanted all along was for the infrastructure bill to be inextricably linked to build back better, to this huge reconciliation spending scheme. And they were able to link them and couple them for weeks on end. This development has now decoupled those two pieces of legislation. And I wonder if that strategically might actually make the Democrats' job harder, ultimately to get Build Back Better passed into law, because some of the moderates, or at least relative moderates in the House, and certainly some of your colleagues in the Senate, they helped negotiate the infrastructure bill. They've gotten the win there. They might want to take that win and say, you know, maybe let's uh, pump the brakes on this other stuff, or maybe let's uh, water it down and bring down you know, the, the tax increases or bring down the spending levels. Some of that progressive uh, leverage that they had is now gone. Well, I think it's hard to precisely calculate what the political implication is of passing a particular piece of, of legislation. That, that being said, I, I agree with your analysis there, which is taking away the physical infrastructure, which, which Biden wanted as part of a total package. Taking that away and making it get voted on independently makes it harder for them to pass all the rest of the stuff, this massive tax increase uh, and the spending on, on pre-K and child care uh, and various benefits, it makes it harder to pass that. That doesn't mean it won't pass. It just makes it harder. And so I believe by separating these two, we've made it harder for them to pass the Build Back Better bill. And I think we've made it uh, a, a substantial savings in, in, uh, in, in spending uh, and probably a savings in terms of tax increases as well. So, you know, I, I, we, we, didn't, we didn't vote for it entirely because of the politics, but I can tell you when you see Mitch McConnell vote for something, uh, it, it says that based upon his calculation, he figures the politics are working in our favor uh, and not on the other side's favor. Yeah, I think that's something that's important to underscore, because whether you love Mitch McConnell or hate Mitch McConnell, I tend to be in the former category. I'm a big fan of cocaine Mitch. When he has his antenna up and he's trying to get the lay of the land politically, his instincts are often very good. He's a savvy operator and a great tactician. He's been doing it a long time. So I think that's just something to think about if you're one of the people really up in arms over this vote. But let's shift now more specifically, Senator, to the reconciliation Democrat spending bill. Trillions of dollars, tons of gimmicks in there to make it seem like it might be a little bit less expensive than it really will be. 
We see record high, what, 31-year highs in inflation. The White House, with a straight face every day, comes out and says, spending these trillions of dollars will help inflation. The president saying, no one's going to see a tax increase unless you're a rich person making over $400,000 a year. We've got nonpartisan analysts saying that's not true. There'll be tax increases on the middle class here. It just feels like, given... All of the struggles and challenges facing our economy right now, I wouldn't support this package under any circumstances. It's way too much spending, way too many tax increases. But especially in this moment, it almost feels like madness. And yet they are chugging right along and determined to pass it. What are your top reasons that you were so vociferously opposed to Build Back Better? Well, first of all, we shouldn't be raising taxes on the American people. That's number one. Number two, we shouldn't be spending a ton of money on things we don't absolutely need, even as we're racking up larger and larger deficits and adding to the national debt. We simply can't afford to spend money on things that aren't absolutely essential. So this bill spends a whole lot of money on things I don't like. I wouldn't vote for any one of them that I know of. And it raises taxes. I mean, it, it's bad on both both sides. And, of course, with all that's going on with inflation, it just adds to the burden that's carried by the American people, and particularly people at the lowest income levels in our society. The, the people who are having a hard time making ends meet are the people who are looking at their gasoline price go up, their home heating oil price go up, their grocery store bill going up. In, in many cases, these are going up by double digits. So when the Democrats tell you, oh, the taxes on people earning under $400,000 aren't going up, there is a tax known as inflation, and that number is going through the roof. Yeah, and the Tax Policy Center, I'll get into these weeds a little bit later in the show, put out their analysis just the other day saying that middle-class income earners will see a tax increase in their actual tax bill, 20 to 30 percent of those households under the House bill. So, I mean, it's, it's, that's a left-leaning organization that came up with that score. Senator, I just want to touch on something you just mentioned. You feel like this spending is not absolutely essential. That was your term, which is why you feel like, especially these days, uh, we should not be pursuing anything like that. Shall I infer from that answer that because you favored and voted in favor of the infrastructure bill, you do believe that that spending is, in fact, essential right now? I believe it will add to the uh, dynamism of our economy, and it will ultimately help lower the inflationary pressures. Why is that? And that is because when you make rail and transit and highways more efficient, you get goods to the consumer faster. And by doing that, you you increase the supply of goods and services, and as a result of that, you lower the inflationary pressures. So it is good for the economy. It gets people not only back to work, but it allows people to get their goods and services at a more reasonable cost. So it is anti-inflationary, and I think virtually any economist who's looked at it said, yeah, this, this will help reduce inflation. It's paid for. Uh, we're, not, we're not adding to the debt with the, uh, with the bill. And, uh, and for those reasons, I think it's essential uh, to get our, get our infrastructure back to, back to the level it should have been. By the way, uh, President Trump, when he was in office, uh, proposed, I think it was $1.5 trillion in infrastructure spending. Uh, he, he opened uh, eyes of a lot of Republicans to the wisdom of adding to our infrastructure uh, in, in our nation. And that's simply something which those Republicans that worked in this bill are attempting to do. Last question on this front, Senator. 
you mentioned the deficit and adding to the deficit. In this case, you say the infrastructure bill is paid for. That's also what the White House is claiming about Build Back Better, although there is a New York Times report now, unsurprisingly, that even with all the smoke and mirrors and all the gimmicks that they've jammed into that reconciliation bill, the White House is now telling congressional Democrats, warning them to brace for a CBO score from the nonpartisan bookkeepers, basically, uh, on Capitol Hill, that is going to be bad for the Democrats, bad for this Build Back Better bill. It will not be all paid for. In fact, the gap could be hundreds of billions of dollars not paid for. And the report in the New York Times last night says that what the White House is urging Democrats on Capitol Hill to do is to ignore the score from CBO, to disregard that number that they might be coming out with as soon as Friday. What is your reaction to the White House reportedly telling Democrats, and it seems like this is now leadership's position as well on Capitol Hill for the Democratic Party, if the numbers don't align, simply ignore them? Well, uh, that that level of dishonesty is not going to sail with the American people. Uh, they, they, the American people will look at those numbers and they'll recognize that, in fact, even if you do the accounting the way the Democrats want you to, it's not paid for. And if you do it honestly, it's really not paid for. And when I say honestly, it's this. When they have a program that, that they put in place and they say it's going to expire after three years, but then they count as the revenue, 10 years of revenue, that, that's just not honest. And so if you take that program and you run it the full 10 years and match it with your revenues over 10 years, then the gap you're talking about is in the trillions of dollars. So that's why I think ultimately you're going to get people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, and they're going to say, hey, guys, that's just not honest. We just can't do it. Senator Romney, you know a thing or two about the Olympics, especially the Winter Olympics, if I recall correctly. I saw one of your tweets earlier in response to reports the Biden administration is preparing to announce a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics next year, different than a full boycott from the United States, a diplomatic boycott. This is a move that you've been advocating for a while. Explain why, if you would. Well, I think it's critical for us to make very clear to the people in China, but in particular to the people throughout the world and here in our own country, that a nation like China, which is carrying out genocide against a million of its own citizens and is also persecuting other minorities, uh, brutalizing people in Hong Kong, threatening the people uh, in Taiwan, this is not a place that should be hosted the Olympics. We're a little late to change the venue where the Olympics are going to be held. I don't want to make our athletes not be able to compete. They prepare their lives to go to these games, but we should not be sending any diplomats there. And so I, I, I am very uh, insistent that the administration agrees we're not going to send our ambassador there. We're not going to send a delegation from the U.S. We are not going to show up to Beijing. But I must admit, I'm looking forward to hearing the United States national anthem played in China when American athletes beat the rest of the world. Senator Romney, last question. We are just about a week out from Thanksgiving. We've been asking some of our guests about this in the last couple days. Thanksgiving happens to be, fun fact, my favorite holiday because it's sort of kicking off the holiday season. I also love Christmas, of course. Is there a specific tradition in the Romney family that is maybe unusual or particularly meaningful to you for Thanksgivings? Uh, we start off the day with our own football game. Uh, and uh, living in Massachusetts, as we did for 40 years, it was typically cold on Thanksgiving. Uh, the whole family <laughs> yeah. goes out. And, uh, well, I should say all the guys go out. The g- girls sometimes, but not all of them usually. And we have a game of uh, a football, and then we come home and watch the NFL, and then it's, uh, it's getting time for dinner.
We've got a pretty big family, so can you could like do full eleven on eleven, maybe? I think we're getting to that point. I've got twenty five grandkids at this point, so we're we're going to wow. be expanding expanding the roster. Well, happy Thanksgiving in advance to you and Anne and the whole Romney clan out there in Utah and elsewhere. It's great to talk to you, Senator Romney, here to kick off the show on this Tuesday. We appreciate your time, as we always do. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. Mitt Romney, Republican senator from Utah. On the Guy Benson Show, just getting started live from Florida, the Hard Rock, the Patriot Awards. We've got you covered. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. We are live from the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel. We're here for the Patriot Awards. Thanks so much for listening to the Guy Benson Show. And coming up in the next segment, Mark Thiessen. Our colleague here at Fox will join us. He's got a superb column at the Washington Post about critical race theory, and he is exposing, I would say, the gaslighting from the left on what is and is not being taught and how they hide behind technicalities. He's got the receipts, he's got the evidence, and he joins us coming up in the next segment. In the meantime, we were just chatting with Senator Romney about inflation, which reminded me of a tweet that I saw this morning when I was getting ready to get on the plane and fly down here to Florida from D.C. Here's what the Associated Press is tweeting. U.S. retail sales rise a healthy 1.7% as Americans shrug off, that's their term, higher prices and spend more on appliances, cars, and at home. And so I saw that tweet and I said, okay, I hope that the economy rebounds. I hope that things get better. I like to see retail sales going up as we're approaching the holidays. However, I'm not so sure about this phraseology that Americans are shrugging off higher prices. In fact, perhaps the reason that they are spending more on these things is related to the higher prices. Right? If prices are up 6%, a 31-year high, people are going to spend a lot more on things, not by their own choice, but because that's what inflation has wrought. That's what this economy is inflicting on them. And if you're looking at your gas bill, your bill to heat your home, your grocery bill, raise your hand if you're shrugging that off. I don't know almost anyone who can shrug it off. Maybe if you're rich enough to be a Democrat. But for most people, it hurts. It pinches. Mark Thiessen on CRT. Coming up next, it's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. As we continue on this Tuesday, it's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. All of your needs related to the program available right there. Also on social media, 
at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Give us a follow. Have a little video that we made. We have a little Fox Nation step and repeat right next to us here at the Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida. So we're previewing the show. Pop that on our social media. Again, that is at Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram. My personal accounts, should you be interested, and I think you should be, quite frankly, at Guy P. Benson. Well, I saw this headline earlier today, and it made me immediately think about the interview that we have planned with Mark Thiessen, who's joining us here in just a moment. This is from Business Insider. Let me just read you the tweet of this story. The Democrats apparently looked at what just happened in Virginia in particular and in a number of states and jurisdictions across the country when it comes to school boards and school issues and what apparently some of their strategists on the Democratic side have decided is that they need to be more aggressive in their attacks on parents. Here's the tweet. Democratic strategists plan to get aggressive on critical race theory saying Republicans are putting politicians in charge of the classroom and white supremacists in charge of the curriculum. So I guess they got their asses kicked in Virginia by parents, and they decided, you know what, let's go after them a little bit harder. Let's call them racist a little bit louder. I wonder how that will go in places that are, let's say, even a little bit less blue than Virginia. The arrogance of this is absolutely stunning, but my reaction to this was elation. Go for it. I hope they do this. I hope they give these strategists a raise and that these strategists remain strategizing for them forever because that will, in my view, help conservatives, help Republicans. If the Democrats look at what happened in Virginia and they believe that the strategy here is to double down on the lying and the smearing, it's amazing. And joining us now to discuss precisely this is our colleague here at Fox News, a Fox News contributor, also a columnist at The Washington Post, former presidential speechwriter, Mark Thiessen. Mark, great to have you back. Good to be with you, Guy. Before we get into critical race theory and what I was just talking about in your latest column, I do have to challenge you on a few things. I saw a tweet on your thread. Are you... A Pepsi guy over Coke? I saw that you were somehow arguing that Pepsi Zero is better than Coke products. And, ooh, I mean, we, we might have some beef here. Yeah, I, well, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm not for the people who boycotted Georgia. So I stopped drinking Coke after that. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a soft boycotter in the sense that if I can't find Pepsi, I'll buy Coke. Uh, but if I have a choice between Coke and Pepsi, one, <laughs> it's I a lazy, I, I don't wanna, lazy I don't boycotter. Yeah, exactly. Lazy boycotter. I'm not going to be inconvenienced. <laughs> but if I've got a choice, why would I choose? You know, why would I choose a company that's uh, that uh, boycotted uh, the state of Georgia over over false charges of Jim Crow? Um, so I just so well, they've they've backed away. Thing, but but the reality is, I was always a Coke Zero guy, not a Diet Coke guy. I don't like Diet Coke. I think of okay. all, So the scale of diet sodas is is. Pepsi Zero is the best, followed by Coke Zero, no. followed by Diet Pepsi, and Diet Coke is at oh. the absolute bottom. So I don't drink any of the diet stuff, but of the Zeros, it's, it, I'm a Coke Zero person. I, always ha- I have been now for years. In fact, I have two Coke Zeros sitting with me here in our broadcast location. Not that I am addicted per se to Coke Zero sugar, but it's awfully close. I also find it interesting that you're shilling for Pepsi here. 
Coke Zero, their colors, as you know, are black and red. Pepsi, blue and white. This also aligns with our hockey teams, Mark. And I wonder if there might be something, I don't know, subliminal here going on because you like to troll me about the Rangers versus my Devils, although you, you sort of disappear when the Devils win those games. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, P.K. Subban has now uh, taken two players out in two games from the Rangers so uh, with his slew foot activity. So, uh, you know, and but we, we won. Kreider, Kreider did the Subban celebration at the end of the game, so that was well-deserved. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we got a point. Game at the Garden. You're so wise on politics, guy. I, can't, I don't understand how you have such bad taste in hockey teams. But, you know, hey, everybody's got their flaws. Well, I mean, the New Jersey Devils have won three Stanley Cups in my lifetime. How many times have the Rangers won the Stanley Cup in your lifetime? One, but that's okay. We'll, oh, okay. We'll yeah. get there. So, I, so I'm, I'm keeping score. We're, you'll get there one day. All right, let's turn to politics in an area of agreement, Mark Thiessen. And you heard my opening into this segment and this new report that apparently what the Democrats and their strategists, the geniuses over there, have decided is – the issue is there was too much misinformation about critical race theory. So what they need to do is gaslight and lie and attack parents harder and play the race card even more aggressively. I would say that I'm shocked, but I'm not really shocked because the bubble that they inhabit is thick. It is pervasive in their social circles. And I'm all for it because I think it's a loser. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you 100%. I guess they just need to come up with their with their lie. Because the, the first thing after Virginia was, CRT is a lie. There's no one teaching CRT. And now it's, oh, we got to do a better job of defending CRT. So which is it? Uh, is there no CRT? Is this just a figment of the of the right's imagination? Or is uh, or is CT, CRT actually being taught? But it's a good thing. They, they, they can't get <laughs> Well, that's always their, been... Right. That's the contradiction, right? They've done this over and over again. It's not happening. Uh, they're lying to you. It's fear-mongering. It's race-baiting. But also, it's absolutely essential and good. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the Loudoun County Schools, this is, you know, this was the swing district in, uh, in Virginia where this whole, uh, this whole movement started. They spent $314,000 for critical race theory teaching of their, uh, coaching of their teachers from a company called the Equity Collaborative, whose whose uh, self-description is that they're a company that turns critical race theory into practices for bringing more equitable learning environments. Um, and they taught Virginia teachers. You're quoting uh, them. That, I'm quoting them right now. That's yeah, exactly. They have a presentation called Introduction to Critical Race Theory. They, they instruct teachers that, quote, racism is an inherent part of American civilization. And they attack, quote, the ideas of colorblindness, the neutrality of law, incremental change, equal opportunity for all, while maintaining, quote, white power and stronghold within society. And it questions the idea of meritocracy, which allows the empowered to feel good. And then they had a breakout session on how you can use CRT to identify and address systemic oppression in your school. This is, the Loudoun County Schools paid $314,000 for this. Um, so don't tell me they're not teaching critical race theory in schools because they've been indoctrinating the teachers in how to indoctrinate the kids. Wait, just to hold up here, Mark, because I want to make sure that we're understanding what you're saying correctly. And this is all listed and quoted specifically in your latest Washington Post column. What this organization that was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars by the Loudoun County Schools in Virginia to come in and do this indoctrination session with their teachers, this group, the Equity Collaborative, is opposed to. They are attacking colorblindness, neutrality of law, 
incremental change, equal opportunity, meritocracy. They are against those things, correct? They are against those things. Those, those things perpetuate <laughs> white supremacy. Uh, in their view, they taught. They taught. This is from the talking points they used for the uh, for the teaching of uh, Virginia teachers. They encouraged them not to profess colorblindness, but admit their own racist, heterosexist, heterosexist, or other detrimental attitudes, belief, behaviors, and feelings, and acknowledge that addressing one's whiteness, e.g., white privilege, is crucial to effective teaching. Unquote. I mean, somebody paid them for this. Taxpayers in, in Virginia, Virginia, where where we were told over and over again none of this stuff was happening. And it's not just Virginia, of course. You talk about New York City, where school administrators have gone through trainings where they are told that, quote, objectivity and, quote, individualism are part of, quote, white supremacy culture. You write that in California, students as young as six, so first graders, also being taught, Lessons inspired by CRT about white privilege and structural racism. This is the inherent contradiction that you really spoke to earlier in this segment. The same exact people who angrily insist that this stuff is non-existent. It's a figment of our imagination. It's just these you know, right-wing figures. It's Fox News. They're spoon-feeding lies to a bunch of parents. Of course, the parents can see it. I have a friend with young kids. She got the first equity CRT-related pamphlet for her daughter, who I believe is seven or eight now, just this past summer. Parents are experiencing this, and what the left and the progressives and the teachers' unions and these special interests in the Democratic Party and much of the media, what they all say from their script, from their hymnal, their left-wing progressive hymnal is, it's a lie, it's not happening. And then... When they get beaten on these issues, they say what we need to do really is talk about people who are against this stuff are engaged in censorship and white supremacy. It is absolutely incoherent. It's also deeply insulting. And I wonder, would it take another shellacking mark for them to learn their lesson or are lessons never learned on the left? Yeah, I don't think they're learned on the left. I mean, look, what they, what they, their problem is this, is that – what blew the lid off of this whole CRT story was not Fox News, was the, as much as we love, but we both love Fox News. It wasn't, uh, you know, any columnist or anything like that. It was the coronavirus pandemic. Because what you know, think about this: if you're if, if you're a parent before the pandemic hit, you drop your kids off at school, you give them a kiss, you go to work, you pick them up at the carpool lane, you come home, you have dinner, you ask them how the day their day went, and you have no insight into what they're see, hearing in the classroom. And then when the corona when the pandemic hit. Parents were stuck at home working online, and their kids were doing online school, and so they were able to actually listen to their, what their kids were actually being taught in the classroom. And this coincided with the whole George Floyd and the, ra- and the racial justice protests and the, the explosion of this teaching in their schools, and the parents were listening. They were in the classroom. So when you say that no one's being taught CRT, they're saying, yes, they are, because I was there. I was in the classroom. Yeah, I saw it. Listening to my kids being taught that their that their whiteness is a sign of oppression that this is our society is broken into oppressors and oppressed and which you are depends on the color of your skin to look at everything through the prism of race uh, and that America is a racist country and it's systemically racist country so I don't know you know these people can call it a lie all they want but the parents were there you know yep and this is the thing you know Terry McAuliffe the failed 
Democratic candidate in Virginia, he said over and over again, it's not happening. It's not taught in Virginia schools. One Democrat after another said the same thing. Barack Obama denied it. The White House from the podium denied it. They all engaged in this widespread gaslighting. And then you give counterexamples and you point to the website, for example, of the Virginia Department of Education. And you and I, I think, both respect our colleague Juan Williams. We had him on the show not too long ago about this because he wrote a whole column buying into the left-wing line here. And I challenged him with just a few of the examples that you're talking about. And with all due respect to Juan, it's like he had never heard these things and was totally unresponsive. He did not even attempt to counter the points that I was raising on this front. And so, I mean, if they want to delude themselves into believing that this is, you know, um, fertile ground for them politically over on the left, by all means. I mean, I feel like Republicans certainly should welcome it, but it is still kind of wild to see a bunch of people insist that what is literally occurring provably all over the place isn't true, but at the same time, the right thing. <laughs> you know, here's the, here's the problem in general. This is a broader problem on the left, is that you say that they're gaslighting us on CRT. They gaslight us on everything. Joe, Joe Biden gaslighted us on, on Afghanistan. Every, everybody in the world saw what a disaster it was, and he says it's an extraordinary success. And so people look at him and say, what's wrong with you? you I, I watched the people falling from airplanes. It's not an extraordinary success. They say, oh, well, you know, the supply chain crisis, it's, it's, uh, it's not an employ- a big problem. It's transitory. And these people are like, I, the price of my bacon just went up $3 a pound. The store shelves are empty. I can't. I went three times to the store to get uh, paper towels, and I can't get them. What are you talking about? You know, if you continuously say things that people's lived experience show, tells them is not true, then they stop trusting you. And this is what's happening and on by the way, front. It's not just CRT. It's a whole bunch of things. Mark, a friend just sent me this during the segment. Uh, a woman called Tara Setmeyer, who's at the Lincoln Project. And I know Tara a little bit. I haven't talked to her in years. Nice lady, but, I mean, she's sort of gone off the deep end in this stuff. And I say that, you know, with, with all due affection. And they're talking about this exact issue, and here's her take on it. Quote, critical race theory is the new N-word for Republicans. Mark, this is, aside from how deeply offensive and insulting that comparison is, it's not going to fly. That is not going to work. I invite them to stick with this line. Our column on on critical race theory, and I encourage people to listen to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On, because we had Professor Alan Well, A lot of people don't really know what critical race theory is. We know, we all know that they're teaching our kids to hate America, to see through through the prism of race, uh, to not be colorblind, and that's terrible. But critical race theory is a really, really pernicious ideology. And I asked Professor Alan Guelzo to come on the podcast, and I wrote a column uh, at the Washington Post based on our interview. And one of the things he explains is that critical race theory is a subset of something called critical theory, which is what gave us the rise of Marxism, right? It taught us that the Marxists took critical theory and said the world is divided between oppressors and oppressed, the bourgeoisie are the oppressors, the proletariat are the oppressed, and we see everything through the prism of that, right? And what, the, what, the, what critical race theory is, 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 is it transposes is it from class to race. Transposing, yeah, exactly. For the Marxist, for the, for the Soviet Union, it was the, pro, the bourgeoisie were the oppressors. 
in, in critical race theory, what all white people are oppressors. And so, you know, yep. it's, it's literally Marxist theory applied to the question of race. And this is incredibly, and it's not, Mark, incredibly dangerous. And it's not, as some people argue wrongly, against a totally made up straw man. It is not people objecting to the teaching of slavery or Jim Crow or anything like that. Every conservative that I know says, yes, teach the great, the good, the bad, and the ugly in our history. This CRT, this basket of issues, is totally separate from that. It's something altogether different. And they are lying to us, and they're calling us racist. This is the N-word. Apparently, this conversation that we're having, Mark, according to this Democratic strategist, is the N-word these days. And, I mean, I fully, forcefully object to that. I reject it completely, and a lot of people do. It is delusional stuff, and as I've said now for like the seventh time in this interview, I hope they stick with this because it is deeply alienating to a lot of people. Mark Thiessen, I wanted to ask you about Afghanistan and the Taliban flying our helicopters in a military parade. Disgraceful. We don't have time for it this time, but we'll have you back next time for sure. Mark Thiessen, Washington Post columnist, former presidential speechwriter, Fox News contributor, fan of the wrong soda and hockey team. Mark, we always appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Take care. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, there was that big uh, bill signing at the White House yesterday. And there was one significant cringy mishap. I'll give you one guess who it featured. Cut four. Please welcome Heather Kurtenbach. In a moment. <laughs> oh, our vice president. I mean, she got a bad break there, but still, and the laugh. You know, Madam Vice President, Veep is not a documentary. I don't know if you know that. Next hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour live in Hollywood, Florida, the Hard Rock, as we anticipate tomorrow evening's Patriot Awards exclusively on Fox Nation, 8 p.m. Eastern. That's tomorrow with an encore presentation Sunday evening on Fox News Channel. We'll be broadcasting this program today and tomorrow from here. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Free podcast every day. GuyBensonShow.com. And follow us on social at Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert as we kick off our middle hour. The Dow closes up today, 54 points, off-session highs, ending the day at 36,142. Well, at the start of the show today, we had Senator Mitt Romney here. And one of the topics of conversation is something that I want to delve into in a bit more depth and detail right now. And this pertains to what the Democrats are apparently trying to do on Capitol Hill. Now, you'll remember a few Fridays ago when they finally passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill with the progressives releasing the so-called hostage, allowing infrastructure to get a vote without the reconciliation bill attached to it. The agreement that they apparently forged between the left-wingers and the so-called moderates was, we'll pass this thing. And then 
by this week, the week of November 15th, so our current week that we're in, at some point this week, they would vote to pass the reconciliation multi-trillion dollar Democrat-only spending spree out of the House. But there was a caveat. There was an asterisk in that deal. The potential wrinkle was this. The White House had insisted this is all paid for. Remember, it costs zero dollars. That was their ridiculous, preposterous talking point. That trillions of dollars really cost zero dollars because, according to them, it was paid for and wouldn't add to the debt. That's different than costing zero dollars. That's adding zero dollars to the debt or deficit, if you believe it. And what the moderates said in this agreement, in their little accord, was if the White House is right on their math, if their math is correct, then we will support it. But we want to see a CBO score. CBO is the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan bookkeepers, scorekeepers on the Capitol, uh, on Capitol Hill, I should say. In fact, we had the former director of CBO on this show yesterday to explain this stuff, Douglas Holtz-Aiken. So that was the escape hatch, if you will, for moderates. If the numbers did not align, then there could be a problem. But the White House, remember, the progressives didn't want a CBO score. The White House was like, oh, who cares about that? Let's just go ahead and vote. Now we are starting to understand why. There's a New York Times report yesterday that I referenced. This was late in the day. I asked Senator Romney about this. And here is what the Times reported. The director of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said on Monday that the IRS proposal, this is sort of cracking down supposedly on tax cheating, having a lot more of a powerful, muscular IRS, IRS snooping around a bit more. They said, oh, it's really just for billionaires, even though the dollar amounts that they're going to be tracking much, much lower. That raised some hackles. But that's one of the provisions that they believe is going to bring in so much more revenue because they're going to catch a bunch of people cheating on their taxes. Well, the CBO director said yesterday that the IRS proposal would yield far less than what the White House was counting on to help pay for its bill. About $120 billion over a decade versus $400 billion that the administration is counting on. So you can run that math, right? Hundreds of billions of dollars of a discrepancy here. Where the White House says, oh yes, uh, this uh, big, much more ferocious IRS will bring in $400 billion more. And the CBO is saying, no, we think it's actually going to be closer to $100 billion. A formal tally is expected to be, uh, to be released on Friday. And the projection from CBO could pose another setback for Mr. Biden's domestic policy legislation, which is already facing steep hurdles in the House and Senate. This is, again, the New York Times piece. The White House has begun bracing lawmakers for a disappointing estimate from the budget office, which is likely to find the cost of the overall package will not be fully paid for with new tax revenue over the coming decade. Shock of all shocks. Do you believe it? The administration did not have its math right. The most competent administration in our history, which exemplifies competence and really illustrates and demonstrates its competence on every front every day. Can't you feel the competence? Well, they're super confident Green eye shade people trying to get this monstrosity through 
are apparently going to disagree with the nonpartisan experts by hundreds of billions of dollars on this provision alone. And we talked to Douglas Holtz-Aiken yesterday. He thought there was another area where there might be a big disconnect. So CBO is likely going to say later this week the package is not fully paid for, not even close. And that includes all the gimmicks that they've already shoved in there that Senator Romney was talking about and other guests have talked about before, sort of playing numbers games with you know the number of years and shortening the number of years that a proposal or a program lasts, not because they think it will be temporary, they want it all to be permanent, but because they want to make the price tag look artificially low to game the system from CBO. Even with all of that, CBO is going to come back, it looks like, at the end of this week and say, yeah, you're off by hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe more, we'll see. So this ridiculous line, going to be true even under their ridiculous definitions and yet we keep hearing from the powers that be the biden white house other leaders in the democratic party that it's fully paid for in fact here was a speaker pelosi yesterday at the bill signing for the other bill the infrastructure bill insisting again fully paid for cut seven oh this is a great accomplishment and there's more to come and so happy that hopefully this week we will be passing the Build Back Better to, to give tax, tax cuts to America's working families, uh, to create millions more jobs, to lower health care costs, and all of it paid for by making everyone pay his or her own fair share. All of it paid for. And we'll revisit that claim about tax reductions, by the way, for working Americans. We'll get back to that in a second. But CBO, who are the nonpartisan arbiters of this stuff, they're saying, no, it's not going to be fully paid for. That is the anticipation. And the White House reportedly here is warning Democrats on Capitol Hill, get ready. There's going to be a disappointing score. But here's another piece from the New York Times. Quote, senior administration officials are urging lawmakers to disregard the budget office assessment saying it's being overly conservative in its calculations. Now, through history, often these programs come in way over budget, right? If anything, the estimates cut in the other direction. But what the White House, right, again, uh, team competence over there with Uncle Joe, team competence is saying, no, no, don't listen to the professionals and the experts, right? They are, they're, they're obsessed. They have a a weird fetish about expertise, the experts, the experts, but not these experts. No, no, no. Listen to us, not the experts on this one. And they're telling lawmakers who insisted on a CBO score, who had agreed to all of this stuff, if the numbers line up, it looks like the numbers aren't going to line up, and they're saying, well, screw it. Let's just vote anyway. Disregard the experts. They don't know what they're doing. And if you think that's an exaggeration, let me play for you in cut 30. This is a White House official, Andrew Bates, one of their spokesmen, who is now seemingly confirming what the Times is reporting because they are now publicly attacking the Congressional Budget Office and saying that they don't really know what they're doing. They don't have experience. The way that, I guess, Team Biden, they have all this great experience on numbers. Unlike the CBO, CBO's whole job is to run these numbers. It is... To me, very, very telling. They are indeed expecting 
an unfavorable score later in the week because they are setting the groundwork. They're laying the foundation for the next talking point for all the Democrats and all the media to say, well, CBO, let's just uh, pat them on the head. Silly children, they don't really know what they're doing. Let's move along and trust these other numbers instead. Our cooked numbers. That's what they're going to say. And don't take my word for it. Listen to a White House official. Again, this is Andrew Bates now rolling out the new spin attacking CBO and CBO's credibility. Cut 30. CBO does not have experience analyzing revenue amounts gained from cracking down on wealthy tax cheats who are taking advantage of every honest taxpayer. Um, last night, reporters directly asked key Democratic House members whose views run the gamut, including moderates, liberals, folks in between. They universally said this was not an issue at all. They don't have experience. Unlike the White House, I guess. They know perfectly that this is going to bring in all this stuff. And by the way, often when governments anticipate revenues from taxes or efficiencies or cutting down on waste or fraud or abuse, they vastly over-anticipate those revenues. If I had to bet, I would bet closer to the CBO number, who are the nonpartisans, versus the White House number, who are partisans trying to push through an agenda. But this is what they're doing. They are attacking CBO. You know that things aren't going to go well when they are preemptively attacking the nonpartisan analysts, the experts, that they love, 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 always love experts, except when they don't. So what's going to happen here? couple options. At first I thought, could this be a head fake? Right? Could the math actually end up working out and they would then have – lowered expectations to then have a big celebration. Oh, look, the math does work. We're going to vote. It looks like based on the White House getting involved here and attacking CBO and maligning, frankly, CBO and their, their capability, it looks like that is unlikely. They are expecting a bad score. So now it comes down to these so-called moderates who have insisted it must all be paid for. Every single dollar must be paid for. It has to add zero to the deficits and debt. That's what they said. That's why they insisted on the CBO score in the first place. Are they going to get a score back from CBO that shows, let's say, hundreds of billions of dollars of a gap? Are they going to then say, okay, we're not cool with this. Let's pump the brakes. Let's stop. And we need to renegotiate some of this stuff. Or maybe just take the Joe Manchin approach because, look, the Senate is a whole different ballgame. And say, you know what? We got our victory. We got our win with infrastructure. This isn't working out with Build Back Better. We're not liking a lot of the stuff that we're hearing about it, so we're out. I think part of the reason that they might not do that in some cases is they are desperate for these tax cuts for the rich because they come from rich districts and they want that salt deduction back. And they don't want that to go away. So they're either going to you know, plant a flag and actually stand up for their supposed moderate values and fiscal responsibility and the stuff that they've been talking about, or they're going to knuckle under and just cave. And ultimately, my money goes on Democrats caving. The whole purpose of their party is to spend as much money as possible, tax and spend and grow the government. That is the raison d'etre of the Democratic Party, and when they have a high-stakes opportunity to do those things, they do it, even if it means walking the plank and losing in large numbers. They did it on Obamacare. When the stakes are high enough for massive increases in government, 
they ultimately salute, and they would rather lose than lose the opportunity to grow the government and tax and spend. So that's what I think would probably happen in the House. I don't know about the Senate and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, and that's where I think these moderates in the House really need to think long and hard about this. And I put moderates in quotes, by the way. If the CBO comes back and there's a big gap between what the White House claimed, lied, or cooked up in their little math laboratory, versus what the experts say, that would be their off-ramp if they want it, these moderates. They can say, nope, this was the caveat, so we're out. If they end up caving and saluting, as they might, they would be voting for a bill that almost certainly would not become law in its existing form. And what does that bill do, among other things? Not only does it add to the deficit, which would fuel inflation, printing more money. It would also, as we have now discussed multiple times on this show, Friday and again on Monday, raise taxes on the middle class and give tax breaks to millionaires. Yesterday at the White House, Joe Biden repeated a debunked falsehood. Cut three. Listen. No one. No one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a single penny in federal taxes. He meant a single penny more. But this is the promise that he made on the campaign trail. It wasn't true then. We know some of the proposals already in the early versions of this bill would hit working class and middle class people. And then as we reported on Friday, from the nonpartisan but left-leaning tax policy center between 20 and 30 percent of all middle class households that is millions of people tens of millions of people will see their taxes go up in 2022 and again in 2023 under this bill tax increases for the middle class meanwhile roughly two-thirds of millionaires would get a tax break with this salt deduction restoration Tax breaks for millionaires, tax hikes for the middle class, that's what would be in this bill, that the moderates would be breaking another promise to vote for, and it might not not even become law if it gets waylaid in the Senate or dramatically changed in the Senate. But those votes would be on the record, and those votes would allow attack ads to almost write themselves from the Republicans. Good luck with that. It's crunch time and some real soul-searching for these Democrats if they want to keep their jobs in Congress. they got to think long and hard about this. So we'll see if this vote happens Friday or Saturday. Pelosi's talking about it. I'm not so sure yet. We're following it closely on the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. Our neighboring state of New Mexico has had a mask wearing requirement uh, really for the last couple months uh, statewide and seems to be at about the same place we are with regard to infection rates. Um, I I think they were a little higher than us yesterday, but they basically tracked with us over the last week or two. There's states that do and states that don't. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that was the voice of Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat in Colorado. He and I disagree on many things, but I really appreciate What he was just saying there, he was being challenged. They had dropped the mask mandate statewide in Colorado. He thought that it wasn't necessary. The mask mandate went away. Their cases are going up. 
So I'm going to bring this back, the mask mandate, because people are just obsessed with this superstition about masks in schools and elsewhere. And Paula said we're not bringing back the mandate, and he pointed to their neighbor, New Mexico, another blue state, where there is a mask mandate, and the cases are tracking almost identically. In fact, he said New Mexico was a little higher than us yesterday. It is exciting to see a leader, especially a Democrat, under these circumstances, appealing to common sense and data on something like masks. And he went on to talk about vaccines. There's no substitute for vaccines. He's absolutely right about that. Masks are not a substitute for vaccination. And that is the type of leadership that I'm very excited to see from anyone, but especially a blue leader in a blue state standing up to the mask mob based on data. So props to him. I'll give him that on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day if you miss any of the live program, which is coming to you live today and tomorrow from Hollywood, Florida, the Hard Rock. We have the Patriot Awards on Fox Nation tomorrow evening, 8 p.m. Eastern. Follow us. Not just at GuyBensonShow.com, but on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter, and Instagram. Joining us now on set, if yes. you will, face-to-face, Pete Hegseth, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, and also author of Warriors, Real Stories from Real Heroes, and host of the aforementioned Patriot Awards tomorrow evening. Again, that's 8 o'clock exclusively on Fox Nation. And Pete, this is your third year involved mm-hmm. in this three-year project. You've hosted it. Yep. And it seems to just be growing and getting bigger. Talk about year one sure. versus year three and, and the growth Absolutely. already. Absolutely. Well, Guy, thanks for having me. Great to see you. Of course. Too long. Uh, yeah, the idea was when Fox Nation started me, started the Patriot Awards, is there are all these award shows out there that honor a bunch of actors that, that play heroes on TV. But there is not an award show that actually recognizes real heroes and holds them up. And in, in any society, a reflection of what you, uh, what you honor is a reflection of what you value. And we honor actors who play the, all the time in these award shows, whose ratings are going down, by the way, for a lot of reasons. And we don't honor the, the people that never sought the spotlight. Let's give them a night. Let's put them up on stage, tell their stories. And we did it the first year uh, here in Florida. Great event, uh, and we just realized we were onto something with it. Last year it was it was COVID, and so we did it virtual. And this year it's three times bigger than it was the first year, and I think it's, in terms of the crowd that's going to be here, in terms I mean, of the crowd, thousands of people, right? And frankly, in terms of all the Fox folks coming in, we've kind of made it a all in the family moment. You right. know, let's come on out and 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 of course the crowd's going to come to. They want to see Tucker, and they want to see Guy Benson, and they want to see Sean Uh Hannity, and they want to see Laura. Not quite in that order. I think I might be last there. but Neither am I. (laughs) But we know who they want to see, but I think it's a reflection of the fact that this has grown. People get the the concept around it, and I'm telling you, when you're in that theater, when you watch the, the, the overviews and the videos that set up the awards for these folks, there won't be a dry eye in the place. And it it'll remind you... Uh, of of how lucky we are to live in this country and how many people quietly defend it every day who get smeared uh, in, in, in other media outlets or mischaracterized, mm-hmm. and here we're trying to do it the right way. Talk about some of these patriots. Let's start here. How are they found? Are they nominated? Do, do we have, like, a team of uh, 
patriot-sniffing dogs <laughs> deployed across the country. How do we find the people and choose who gets honored this way? Uh, it's a tough process. It's a, it's a super secret, basically, producer committee. Okay. Uh, and, but ultimately, it's, it starts early in the year, and it is look for every story maybe in, in a you know, local paper or maybe there was a small segment on Fox or something that barely got a notice or you found it on Facebook, and they start to pull them together, and they try to find the stories that are emblematic of a larger theme. You know, this year there's a new award, Back the Blue, uh, that, that hadn't happened in the previous two years. Uh, and so it, it's impossible because we know how many people out there deserve an award. Uh, and so you're always leaving people out that would be deserving. But they, they, they sort of filter through and identify Afghanistan was a huge thing this year, mm-hmm. uh, the, the way it ended there. But who stepped up? Vets group stepped up and said, we're not going to leave anyone behind. So let's find one of those vets who ran one of those groups that was right there on the ground doing something about it. Doing something that the government wasn't doing. That the government do. would not do. Is yeah. still doing to this That's day, right. by the way. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Blinken said there's nobody there. Trust me, there are plenty of blue passport holders who want to leave Afghanistan who have not been contacted That's by correct. the government. It's not true. Indeed. Or uh, the Olympics were this year. And we had a, lo- a bunch of debates around political protests on the, on the stand. Mm-hmm. Well, there were a couple Olympians who took the opposite approach and said, no, I love the flag and I love this country and I'm proud to be uh, a citizen of the United States of America. Uh, th- a police officer that, that, that saved umpteen number of lives this year, again, never expected the spotlight. Young kids. The, wait till you meet the kid who made the awards. We always find someone. Yeah, unique, I heard about this kid from Long awards. Island, right? A teenager? Yeah, uh, Reuter, Bobby Reuter. We're not supposed to give out too many names, but we know his name already. Yeah, he starts a business during COVID, Long Island Flags, and it takes off. And he, he ultimately, just an amazing cause. We find him, and he made the awards. Uh, in his garage, the physical awards. The physical awards. Yeah. He made them in his garage. Now, but they're beautiful. So it, it's it's a it still has very much a grassroots feel, and we want it that way. Uh, and those are the types of people we'll be honoring tonight. So I assume we're not doing the thing like they do on the Oscars, where there are multiple nominees. There's a camera on all of them, and then four of them are crestfallen because there's one true patriot, and the other four are like you know also rans. Well, we have we have a winner and only a winner in the category. We only have a winner. Yes. Can you imagine? We've got four police officers yeah. out here. You nice three try. just didn't right? make you, the You cut. only saved seven lives, but <laughs> yes. this guy did nine. So but, but, take a seat. But what we? You're exactly right. But what we? Do, do, I mean, we've invited so many uh, law enforcement, first responders, sure. f- other people in these categories yeah, I mean, who deserve. You're, you're going to be in the securest uh, <laughs> yeah. auditorium in America tomorrow night, uh, and that's what makes it so cool. Yeah, I think that sometimes you know, patriotism can be seen as out of favor, uncool, jingoistic, old-fashioned. What does patriotism mean to you, and why isn't it or shouldn't it be any of those things? Well, I think we, we would reject fundamentally the characterization you put forward. Correct. Uh, it is a recognition of how special America is and how its perpetuation is not inevitable, and every generation has to stand up and appreciate it, love it, and fight for it. And that, and that shouldn't have to mean some side of the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. It, but it does start with gratitude. It does start with a recognition that we have something special here, that our flag means something, and that people have sacrificed and given their lives for it. 
just we don't have to agree on marginal tax rates or on uh, you know Medicare for all. What we need to agree on is that we're we're in a great place that we should hold up for the next generation and revere, while acknowledging that we have sins of our past. Yes, that we've worked past and worked through. I mean, it's so and, interesting. And I think you could say sins of, the, of our present as well, and we can have a debate about what that looks like. All the way, we have flaws. We've had flaws. We have flaws. What I really get bothered by, and this is unfortunately I think far too many of our friends on the left have gone in this direction where they want the country and the legacy and the meaning of America to be defined by the flaws. Yes. Which is exactly backwards. Exactly. I mean, I think the perfect example of that is the book that's coming out this week, The 1619 Project. I mean, that is the attempt. I mean, the article came out two years ago, but they, they, they laid bare in the first paragraph of that New York Times Magazine article, we want to reform, reshape the view of American history through the lens of race. With errors, riddled with errors. Riddled with errors. Now, they say they've fixed the errors. We'll, we'll oh, see. But uh-huh. it, 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 is, it is the view of 1776 versus 1619, and that doesn't mean you don't understand what happened in 1619 and the things we had to fight through, but respecting the special moment and what it's taken to preserve it. So you're right. Do we, do we, we are all sinful creatures. Anybody who thinks they're not is a fool. Yeah. We live with a lot of fools right now who think we can reshape some sort of utopian world. The reality is we're all fallen. We're all sinful. We all make mistakes. How do we recognize that and create a, uh, a better country that, that we all love? And, but what I'm going to say from the stage tomorrow night is I dare someone to refute the idea that we are not the most free, most just, most diverse, most tolerant, and most prosperous country in human history. Mm -hmm. Find me one other one not defined by a tribal group or a geographic identity. What we've done here in this experiment— You just tick through a bunch of criteria. Yeah. You have to hit all of them to beat the United States, and I don't think you're going to do that. (laughs) Because people say, well, you know, on this index, this country might—it's like, all right— Let's look big picture. Where are people wanting to live? Where are people risking their lives to come? Mm -hmm. And I think time and time again throughout our history, the answer is the United States of America. So let's uh, go behind the scenes a little bit, peek behind the curtain. You're emceeing this thing. It's, what, Mm -hmm. an hour and a half or so. Give or take, yep. And there's going to be thousands of people there. And you're in front of millions of people on Fox and Friends. Totally different beast, though, with a live audience. For sure. It, you know, it gets the, the juices flowing for sure when you're talking in front of a group. How much preparation is being done here? Rehearsals? I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, bells and whistles. How's it all coming together to look you know, smooth and all put together tomorrow night? We rehearse a lot, and then tomorrow night I'm going to go out there and wing it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tons of preparation. When you see between production, audio lighting, marketing, every single angle of what Fox News Channel and Fox Nation is capable of, uh, it, it, it's humbling. You, I mean, I, listen, I'm going to be the guy standing on the stage with a lav mic with a huge spotlight on me, but none of that happens without truly an army of people behind the scenes. It's astounding Producers, how many people are here. Production. I mean, and, and we just, I walked to your set from the, a three-hour rehearsal back there of i watched some of it i just you, literally go right through this door i'm pointing it so it doesn't help on radio i'm pointing <laughs> if you can watch on the camera at fox nation right now right through it's that true. door you walk in and my first reaction was like holy cow there's a lot of seats in here this is a big venue it's going to be full it's going to be full and you know it's the it's the floating cams yep. and then the steady cams on the floor because it's kind of like an oscars feel you've got oh yeah You've and by the way, the building the is shaped like a guitar. This is there's nothing subtle about this event. No, right? We're no. not doing subtle here for the Patriot Awards. Mm-mm. If you're looking for nuance, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> 
so let's uh, make the pitch to people because people are busy. They've got yep. a lot going on. The holidays are coming up. You know, there are a lot of pressures right now and challenges in the country. Everything's costing a fortune. Why should they sign up for Fox Nation, for example? Why should they tune in tomorrow night? What's the – I mean, you've, I think, already sort of laid out what's cool yeah. about it. But specifically, why is it worth an hour, two hours of someone's time on a Wednesday night, tomorrow, 8 p.m., on Fox Nation to watch this event? Because if you watch, you watch the news right now, it's pretty easy to get dispirited. It's pretty easy to get uh, cynical mm-hmm. about the, the, the trajectory of our country. Sometimes you need to take a moment and take a pause – uh, to just soak in um, the good things about our country and the, the good people that are behind it and, and, and feel your heart swell with pride and your, your eyes well up with tears for all the right reasons. And I know that watching all the videos and introductions of our honorees, I, I, was, I was sitting in my office watching them a couple of weeks ago, and I was bawling. I'm not a crier. It's a little dusty in here. Yeah, I'm like, <sighs> and I just—it's a it, and a feeling I should carried with me for a, a couple of hours. It just—it just reminds you uh, who we are and 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 what America represents. And I'm grateful that there is one place. I mean, it really is Fox News Channel and and, and radio that is able to provide the balance to the remainder of the conversation for the most part. Mm-hmm. The same thing exists in streaming services. I mean, do you think you're going to go to Netflix and get this? You think you're going to go to some other, uh, you know, Peacock? Yeah, Hulu. And you're gonna, uh, Hulu, you're going to get some big, giant celebration of American values. Oh, one of these you're going to have, like, the Antifa Awards. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, and, do, we not and, already, do we not already kind of have them? And the winner for Best Dumpster Fire <laughs> is. <laughs> right? That's exactly not, right. That's not what we're going to do. So, like, why can't we have one place which is unabashedly proud of our country? And then the content you get is... You know, great history, faith, um, amazing series. Character. 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 From characters to people that you like on Fox doing additional content, going deeper on subject, and touching topics that no one else is going to touch. I mean, Tucker Carlson's originals on January 6th, you're not going to get that anywhere else. You're going to get content that's going to challenge you too you may not all may not agree with every right. aspect of it that's fine and on that one i don't but. but at least the conversation is out there and it's out there in an unvarnished fashion same but you can look at anything i did uh, battle in the holy city in israel let's look at that on the ground the reality let's talk about modern warriors a series i got with post 9-11 vets where we talk about what they're really facing we did it with vietnam vets recently i mean when you watch the fall of, of Kabul, it looks a lot like the fall of saigon you know, how do veterans of other generations process that as well? So I'm just – I'm proud of the content that's on. Uh, look at Cops. I mean, Cops is back. On, oh, yeah. Cops got canceled after, what, 32 seasons? Well, thir- season 33 is on Fox Nation. So I – it's and – and right now, vets, military, first responders, it's free for a year. So you're not, you know, from that subset. And even then, you can do a free trial. Check it – do the free trial and check out the Patriot Award. Yeah, tomorrow like night, it. 8 p.m., Fox Nation, foxnation.com. Last thing, Pete, I spent the weekend actually in West Palm Beach. I was speaking at an event, and I had a breakfast speech. So I get in there. It's a pretty big crowd. It's five or 600 people maybe. And you're at one of those tables, and you're sort of like, you know, the adrenaline starts to go because mm-hmm. it's, it's a crowd that you're standing up in front of. And I'm, I'm very comfortable speaking in front of people. Obviously, <laughs> this is my job. But, you know, you're, you're in that moment. You're like, okay, here we go, some, some butterflies. Are you nervous for tomorrow? Uh, not right now, but I know I will be about five minutes before. I think uh, that's healthy. I think it's 
Yeah, I mean, you listen, you do tons and tons of live content. At, at, at some point, you get used to it. But there is something uh, special about this event. And, and I don't uh, – I kind of go with the Allen Iverson approach. You know? Okay. Practice. Uh-huh. You talking about practice? Like, I don't like rehearsals that much. I'm kind of a live content guy. I know you probably prefer that as well. So just get, let's get to the game. Yeah, let's get to the game. We got we've prepared, ready to go. I'm ready for the game now, and that game is going to be uh, 8 p.m. tomorrow night. It's it's going to be a heck of a show. The Patriot Awards, Fox Nation, foxnation.com, 8 p.m. tomorrow night, exclusive, nowhere else to watch it live. Nope. And for all the reasons that we've just discussed here for the last you know, 10, 15 minutes, I think that a compelling case has been made. It's going to be pretty cool. It's going to be special, and I hope many of you will give it a shot. The MC of the whole shebang, Pete Hegseth, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, is here with me. Pete, great to see you. Good great luck to tomorrow you. night. We'll be rooting for you and cheering on these heroes. It is going to be you know, a lot of... A lot of people going to be watching, you know, your peers watching is a whole other thing, too. So when I'm staring out at all of them, that's when I think I'm going to be like, oh, man, I can't mess this up. I won't boo you too loudly. When I, I hear them, when I hear them, I'll know where they're coming from. <laughs> Pete Hexeth on guy. The Guy Benson Show. We'll be back after this. The Guy Benson Show. It's The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. Still to come in our next hour, our final hour, Julio Rosas of townhall.com. My colleague there, he's in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We're on Verdict Watch. In the Rittenhouse murder trial, and I'd be surprised if we got a verdict today for a number of reasons, but how did closing arguments go yesterday? We'll get Julio's take. He's been covering all of it, plus a few sound bites and observations on that trial that's coming up. Also, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, they had Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, up on Capitol Hill today. She asked some questions. Things got heated during that hearing we will ask her all about that it's coming up now i did see there was an interview with dr fauci i know i know it's a shock he was on television I, has he ever been on television before i don't know have you seen him anywhere i'm trying to figure out what doctoring he actually does it's just tv star fauci so he did a cbs interview and he's got this interesting look where he's got the the jacket and the button down shirt but then under the top button is, you know, open, and then under that, he's got a black turtleneck. It's sort of like a, a very Bond villain look, right? It's like he's, you know, no, I expect you to die, Dr. Bond. And you can't see him because it's, you know, it's from his shoulders up, but I'm sort of imagining him with a hairless cat that he's stroking with a hand with a pinky ring, right? This is sort of the look that he's got here, Dr. Fauci. And he was asked about when he might step away from the public eye and maybe just, like, uh, stop doing so many interviews all the time. And he said he's not going to go away, basically, until the pandemic is over. He was talking about vaccines and boosters. How about this deal? If everyone gets vaccinated, will you promise to never go on television again? That might actually work. Would you take that deal? You get the shot. No more Fauci. It's actually very tempting. That might be the most effective pro-vaccine message and incentive I've ever heard of from Dr. Fauci. Would he go with it? Uh, I'm not convinced. Final hour coming up. Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, our final hour today on this Tuesday. Live from Hollywood, Florida, and the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel, home of the Patriot Awards tomorrow night on Fox Nation, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for tuning in. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day right there, GuyBensonShow.com, or wherever you get your podcasts, FoxNewsPodcast.com, for example. Another great option there. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. I just learned we are getting a massive shipment of the long drink to our house for the Christmas party that we've got in the works. So uh, a very long drink Christmas upcoming at Shea Benson. We're excited about that. It's thelongdrink.com, their website. You can find out where it's sold near you. You can order online, thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. Well, it's the happy hour, but a serious topic. The Rittenhouse verdict is expected really at any, at any time. There's no indication that the jury has reached a verdict, but they are in deliberations. We saw and played, in fact, live some of the closing arguments yesterday during this program. And joining me now from Kenosha is Julio Rosas on the ground in Wisconsin, senior writer at townhall.com. He's a colleague of mine there. Julio, good to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me again, guys. I just want to get your overall thoughts, particularly on the closing arguments yesterday from the prosecution and from the defense, and then uh, just a general lay of the land on if and when this verdict comes down, is Kenosha ready for potential unrest? Because there's a lot of people stoking, I think, expectations and narratives that could lead to more unrest. So in terms of the closing arguments for the prosecution, I mean, it was borderline parody. And it would actually be really funny if the stakes weren't so high for Rittenhouse and, by extension, uh, the country. I mean, they were I – mean, the one of the uh, assistant district attorney, uh, Kraus, he basically called Rittenhouse a coward for not using his hands to fight off Joseph Rosenbaum, which is uh, okay. Uh, uh, assistant district attorney Binger – uh, said that Kyle Rittenhouse should have fired warning shots, uh, which you're typically not allowed to do. Um, it's a generally unwise thing to do because if it does hit somebody by accident, you're liable for that. Uh, he also said he could have surrendered to the crowd, which I, I could tell you that crowd is very violent, so I don't think that would have been a smart thing for Rittenhouse to just throw his gun down and just surrender. Uh, yeah, you were there. Why. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why he was running towards the police when he got attacked the second time. Um, so it, it just shows how just terrible this prosecution team has been. And don't get me wrong, this case was was not strong from the start, but they decided to take these very weird uh, routes and arguments that, you know, maybe a more competent uh, lawyer would have not have taken. But uh, for for the defense, you know, again, they just really hammered the point home that, and as the video shows and as what I witnessed from that night, Rittenhouse only shot the people who were actively attacking him. I mean, that, that's not in dispute. I mean, just as much as the fact that it's not in dispute that he's the one who did it, he only shot people who were trying to get him in some way. And in fact, there was even a few times when he did not shoot at people who, who did attack him from behind. And that, that was an important thing to, to point out as well. Uh, in terms of the, you know, if, if the city and the county uh, is ready for any potential unrest, 
Well, the, the National Guard has been activated. Uh, 500 National Guardsmen are on standby, but they're in a neighboring county, and they're about an hour and a half away. Uh, and that's only because Kenosha has not officially requested them yet. They will, they're on standby to be requested so that they're ready to go in case something happens. And so it's kind of an interesting place to kind of put them because, you know, that's the whole point of a quick reaction force is so that they can react quickly. Uh, so hopefully if they do re- request support, um, those one and a half hours are not going to be detrimental to the safety for, uh, for the residents of Kenosha. One theory that I've heard a few different times now is that even if the jury feels pretty confident, let's say in a not guilty verdict or some acquittals across the board, they may not come to that conclusion publicly very quickly. They might really deliberate to say, look, we went through every single line of evidence because there are a lot of people out there who are in advance calling this a travesty of justice. They don't care about the facts. They care about storylines, racial storylines that don't even apply. Everyone involved here was white, but we, we racialize everything. And if a jury is going to acquit, we know, we talked about this last time you were on the show, there's been some attempted intimidation of the jury, or at least you know some serious hints of that. And allegations of people filming jury members, trying to take photos of jury members. So I think they kind of want to at least show that they're crossing every T, dotting every I before they come back with a verdict. Does that sound right to you? What's the scuttlebutt around the courthouse in terms of the timing here and how long it often takes juries to deliberate in cases like this? Yeah, that that theory definitely makes sense. Obviously, we can't know for sure just because, you know, I'm not in the jury right. room, although I, I would very much like to be, to be there as would everyone else in the courtroom or the courthouse would be. Uh, but, no, it, it, exactly. It's because um, this is obviously a very highly politicized case. You know, the, the, the eyes of the nation are on Kenosha once again. And I think, you know, the it's, it's unfortunate that they that they are now kind of almost forced into this position because in reality they should have never have gone to trial in the first place. Uh, but because they, they certainly not with they, these charges, exactly. And so, in the sense of their 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 the Kenosha DA is kind of pushing off the responsibility to like to these twelve uh, average citizens. Uh, of Kenosha. And so, you know, I, I, it's understandable that they are going to obviously think about their safety and the safety of the town. But at the same time, you know, they really, you know, the whole point of the jury is to just look at the facts of the case and the facts of the case um, as, as the trial has laid out, as proved, as, you know, as I've said repeatedly, he only shot people who were actively attacking him in self-defense. Right. Uh, so th- th- there's there's a lot of anticipation Obviously, uh, I, I can't say outside the courthouse there have been more protesters uh, outside today, uh, mostly anti-Rittenhouse protesters. There's a few pro-Rittenhouse uh, uh, people out there, and they're kind of getting to some verbal shouting matches, nothing, nothing too crazy, uh, thankfully, so far. But, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of the suspense that's kind of getting everybody uh, right now. Julio Rosa, senior writer at townhall.com. We work together there. He has been on the ground in Kenosha for the initial riots and now for this trial as well. He's sort of like a storm chaser, but with societal unrest and covers it for townhall.com and captures images and videos that show what's actually happening, information that perhaps people would never know if not for people like Julio. So we appreciate your work out there. Stay safe, Julio. We'll talk to you again. Thank you. Julio Rosas on the Guy Benson Show. He mentioned one of the district attorneys, one of the prosecutors, Thomas Binger. And at one point, I found this very strange. 
I saw this clip. This was during closing arguments where he was talking about one of the people who was shot dead by Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse says in self-defense. I think there's a fair amount of evidence backing that up. But Joseph Rosenbaum was one of the guys who was shot and died. And the prosecutor, Binger, was describing the activities of Rosenbaum earlier that night over the course of the riot. And just listen to the tone here. He's trying to, like, play down what this guy was up to. I found this to be an extremely bizarre choice by Binger, who does not seem to be very good at his job, quite frankly. Listen to cut 15. So what does he do that night? Oh, let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road and they tipped it over to stop some bear cats and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word. He's tisk-tisking the N-word. That's really weird. That's really weird. White guy running around screaming the N-word. I mean, these days, <laughs> you get more than canceled for that understandably, but he's, oh, he said the N-word, tisk tisk. that's weird. He listed multiple fires that this guy set. This guy was rioting. He was running around, breaking things, and setting fires. And this is the district attorney, this is the prosecutor in the case, who's saying, through his tone, that this was really not really anything. Joseph Rosenbaum, he was just minding his own business, tipping some stuff over, setting some fires, screaming racial epithets. That's all. What a weird way to approach it to begin with. However, what he left out of that list was chasing Kyle Rittenhouse, threatening to murder Kyle Rittenhouse and trying to grab Kyle Rittenhouse's gun in order to follow through on the murderous threat. Those, ladies and gentlemen, are the relevant actions of Joseph Rosenbaum on that night. For a prosecutor to kind of poo-poo and almost mock the severity of rioting and setting fires and engaging in other illegal activity and also screaming arguably the most detestable word in the English language, was a choice. It was a weird one from this guy, but he did it. He left out, almost portraying this guy as some, you know, basically innocent victim. He left out the actions that led to him being shot, which are what are the relevant elements of this trial. So that's an easy rebuttal, obviously, for the defense. And a Very weird way to try to go about this for the prosecution. And by the way, one more thought on this guy, Rosenbaum, one of those uh, two who was shot dead. And I've mentioned this before, this should not influence the verdict. Just because you've done bad things in your life, very bad things in your life, does not entitle someone to shoot you in the street. Right? There's a criminal justice system for that. Saying, oh, these are bad people, so they had it coming. That's not a good argument. But to pretend that they're somehow good people and not very bad people, that's also not honest. All three of the people who were shot had criminal records, and Rosenbaum in particular had raped five children. 
and also when he went to prison, had multiple violent offenses in prison, too. This was a violent, dangerous, child, sexual assailant who had abused and sexually assaulted multiple young boys. And for, again, the prosecution to be painting this person, the child rapist, who's now currently rioting in this situation, setting things on fire like, oh, he was just some sort of innocent bystander who just got murdered out of nowhere without mentioning the actual elements of the killing, the elements of the shooting, I think points to how desperate the prosecution has been in this case. Andy McCarthy, who we've had on this show about this very trial, he was on with Special Report and Brett Baer last night. And his basic takeaway as a prosecutor himself, a high-profile prosecutor for many years in his previous career, Andy McCarthy, he said all of this sort of shiny objects over here, over there, attacking Rittenhouse's character and his judgment and all this stuff, it was all a bunch of noise to get away from the actual facts of the relevant altercations, which I think belies the strength of the case here. It, it exposes how weak the case is. And I think the case is weak because they brought charges based on political pressure and considerations. They were worried about the politics and the rioting, more rioting. So they gave the mob briefly what they wanted, murder charges. Then they had to go about proving it, and they have really struggled to do that. I have no idea what the jury's going to do. But even people who generally would not be fanboys of Kyle Rittenhouse, I'm not a fanboy. I said before, I don't think he's a hero. I think it was a mistake for him to be there. But even people who have been very critical of him have watched the trial, and a lot of them who are willing to be honest are saying, yeah, this is not going well for the prosecution. One last point. Cory Bush, member of the squad, House of Representatives. You say, well, why are you focusing on a tweet from Cory Bush? I've noticed that when certain Republicans backbench fringe Republicans in the House, when they do anything, it's national news. Right, that lady down in Georgia? Always national news, all the crazy stuff she does. Well, here's Cory Bush, crazy on the other end. She tweeted this yesterday. When we marched in Ferguson, white supremacists would hide behind a hill near where Michael Brown was murdered and shoot at us. They never faced consequences. If Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted, it tells them that even seven years later, they can still get away with it. First of all, I have seen no evidence. People are like, where the hell is she getting this thing about white supremacists shooting at the demonstrators? Just like open season? Did they miss every single person? Was did, No one was shot, apparently. That's... A weird allegation that appears to be baseless. She refers to the murder of Michael Brown. Right? Remember, hands up, don't shoot. Allegedly, the Obama Justice Department did a federal investigation and found that that was not a murder. It was a justified police shooting, and the left-wing talking points were a myth. That was the Obama Justice Department. So using the word murder there is inaccurate, deeply inflammatory. And now she's tying in Kyle Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse, who has nothing to do with any of that, totally different circumstance, no black life involved at all in that particular shooting, and saying, well, if he gets off, then the white supremacists know that they can get away with shooting black people. It's just a non sequitur on top of an unsubstantiated allegation on top of a lie in this tinderbox of a case from a member of Congress. 
Is that national news? Or are we all, oh, are we all wringing our hands about misinformation? Or is it only certain misinformation that's a problem? It's a rhetorical question. You know the answer. On The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Still to come, Senator Marshall Blackburn. She's up next on The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday at the White House, our colleague Peter Ducey asked Circleback about the Rittenhouse trial, and she said she didn't want to comment, but then she did. Cut 12. Why did President Biden suggest that Kyle Rittenhouse on trial in Kenosha is a white supremacist? So, Peter, what I'm not going to speak to right now is anything about an ongoing trial, uh, nor the president's past comments. Uh, What I can reiterate for you is the president's uh, view uh, that we shouldn't have, broadly speaking, uh, vigilantes patrolling our communities with assault weapons. We shouldn't have opportunists corrupting peaceful protests by rioting and burning down the communities they claim to represent anywhere in the country. So she gets around to uh, attacking the rioters or uh, criticizing the rioters. She starts saying, oh, I'm not going to comment on this. But let me just talk about vigilantes patrolling communities with assault weapons. Not talk about anyone in specific, obviously. We're not going to do that. The president and his campaign portrayed Rittenhouse as a white supremacist. The most powerful person in the country at the time running for that office. And then they're asked a question about that comment based on all the evidence that's come out. White supremacists, you know, what is that about? Why did he say that? Oh, we can't comment. Big sigh from Circleback. Big sigh. We're not going to comment. I'm just going to broadly comment about vigilantes with assault weapons. No accountability, and they get the shot in any way by hiding behind no comment in an ongoing trial. Real leadership as usual from these people. Marshall Blackburn up next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Broadcasting from Hollywood, Florida. Tomorrow night it's the Patriot Awards on Fox Nation. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com podcast is always free. And earlier there was actually a whole series of exchanges on Capitol Hill between senators and the Secretary of Homeland Security on the issue of immigration. One of those senators is my next guest. Let's listen to part of her back and forth with the DHS Secretary earlier today. Cut 27. Yes or no, have you ever visited the White House? Have I visited the White House? Yes. Have you ever visited the White House? Yes. So you're aware there is a fence around the entire perimeter of the White House to prevent unauthorized individuals from entering the White House, correct? Yes. And U.S. taxpayers are also funding a half-million-dollar fence around President Biden's Rehoboth Beach House, correct? I'm not aware. And your department is overseeing this construction. You should be aware of that. President Biden obviously likes walls when they protect him. So can you explain to me why a wall is effective and necessary at the White House and the Biden Beach House, but is not necessary at the southern border. That was the voice of Senator Marsha Blackburn with Alejandro Mayorkas, DHS secretary. That was earlier today. Blackburn, of course, a Republican from Tennessee, and she joins us now on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, welcome back. Senator, do we have you? 
Yes, indeed. I'm happy to join you. And it has been quite the feisty day here on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I saw some of the clips with Ted Cruz going at it with Mayorkas. You asked that question about the efficacy of walls or structures like fences at the White House, at the Beach House, but not at the border. What was his response to that? Well, it was uh, he tried to make it appear that I did not understand the nature of the wall and that I didn't quite understand that the southern border is different from a White House fence. But what is lost on him is that the whole thing is about protecting people and protecting this nation and our citizens. And indeed, what he said, what he in essence would lead you to believe that, yes, there are some things that it is worth the nation defending and spending money on, like a fence around the beach house or the White House or other areas, but not the southern border, that that is not worthy of the taxpayer dollar to secure that southern border. In essence, what we learned today, Guy, is that we have a Department of Homeland Security secretary who does not believe in security, who does not believe in securing that southern border. He asked, he said in response to one of my questions that he thought illegal aliens should be able to get green cards. Now think about that, because that's the provision that the socialist Democrats are pushing to get into the Build Back Better plan. Right, which won't get in there. I think the parliamentarian has already struck that down, but they want to. Uh, They've made really no secret of it. And it's just sort of amazing that the broader point would be lost on anyone. If we build walls to prevent unauthorized entry to some places because walls work in those cases when it comes to prevention, why not use similar tools to prevent other unauthorized entrances or you know crossing into somewhere where people aren't allowed to be why not do that in an area where we're just getting completely overwhelmed and our people have been overwhelmed our system has been overwhelmed not just for a few days or a few weeks but now for a year with more than a million and a half people coming in this country illegally that we know of not including the gotaways across that border and it's they don't really have a good explanation for it that won't work that's not appropriate that's a problem and senator what strikes me as fundamentally the issue here is that among many on the left in the democratic party any form of enforcement is problematic or inhumane, and therefore they don't really believe in enforcement at all, whether it's a wall or something else. Well, that is correct, see, and that is key to this. They do not believe in any of this enforcement. I've been told by Border Patrol and local law enforcement that some of the technology that President Trump had provided for them, that DHS is removing that technology. Mayorka said he was not aware of that. So I said, why don't you go investigate this and get back to me, which he has promised to do. And, of course, they keep saying Trump's wall. No, this is something that the Border Patrol for 30 years has said, look, we need a wall. We need better technology. We need more agents. We need more judges. 
And so President Trump listened to the Border Patrol agents, and he provided what they have repeatedly requested so that they can do this job, which their mission is to prevent illegal entry into this country, to prevent illegal entry. And President Trump said, let's get this under control. Numbers dipped to the lowest they had been in 2020. And now what do we see? We see numbers the highest they have been in decades, if ever. That's right. And and if it works, they're against it. If it's the wall, they're against it. If it's Remain in Mexico policy, they're against it. You just go down the line. Now, we've seen some new numbers from the border released today from October. And the somewhat good news is that the number was actually down a bit from September, but still the highest October number of encounters, illegal encounters at the southern border ever, the highest October number ever. And it's just adding to that massive number, well over 1.5 million last fiscal year and now starting off the new fiscal year. Uh, this continues to be a massive problem. We haven't seen the Godaway numbers yet. We know that the Godaway numbers were extremely high for a number of the weeks in October. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't get included in the 164,000-plus encounters at the border in October. Again, the highest on record for an October. I know some people on the left are saying, oh, it's down a little bit from September, so that's good. It is still near record highs, and in case, in this case, in the month, it is at a record high. And it seems like the answers that we get about how to stem the tide from the administration are just nonsensical, incoherent runarounds. That's my impression of it. Did you hear anything today that gave you more confidence that they were actually trying to tackle this problem in a way that would be successful? No, not at all. You know, he he even went so far as today to say that Kamala Harris is not the border czar. Uh, well, we all know that she was tasked as the supposed border czar. He came to that hearing without numbers and facts and figures. He could even, I, my team emailed his team and said she's going to ask him for these numbers. So you would think that the head of Homeland Security would come in there and would know, would have the preparation to say, this is the sum total of the, of who we are. Well, you know, of what is happening at the border. This is the magnitude of the problem that we're dealing with. But when you have a secretary who does not see this as a problem, this is obviously their border policy, and they seem to be pleased with the number of illegal entrants into this country every month. And they're going so far as to do these payments of $450,000 per per individual that was separated, either short-term or long-term, from a child. Right. And they're, this is amazing. So if you've got parent-child, they get a million dollars. If it's a family of four, they're going to get $2 million. This at a time when inflation is just on such a rapid rise that people are having difficulty making the ends meet. 
So this is what we find ourselves dealing with. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, serving, of course, on multiple committees. She's author of the book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman, and she hosts the podcast Freedom Rings. Senator Blackburn, as always, appreciate you making some time for us today. Good to be with you. Thank you. Marsha Blackburn on The Guy Benson Show, back with the home stretch straight ahead. Guy Benson will be right back. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. And if you're listening on the live broadcast, you might imagine my facial expression as we're listening to a Christmas song. This was the song, in fact, that was playing in the Uber when I got in. It was early in the morning, far too early. I'm not a morning person, but fade it out. Fade it out. We're done with it. We're done. We're done. Thank you. It's gone. It is November the 16th, people. It's not even Thanksgiving. We're not even a week out from Thanksgiving. And yet Christmas is being thrust upon us everywhere. And my position on Christmas music is December 1st. I should mention it's the home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast, all that stuff. Back here tomorrow live in Florida. But it's like, whatever, 7 in the morning, in the back of an Uber, and that song is on. J-I-N-G-L-E, bells. Which is like a third-tier Christmas song to begin with. And I wanted to hurl myself out of the moving vehicle. I can't do it. I am a fierce defender of Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. Christmas is a close second. I like the fact that one leads into the other. Right, it's like kicking off the whole season. I don't want to leapfrog a very important, good, all-American holiday and prematurely get to Christmas. This has long been my position. I believe I've beaten it into the ground, in fact, here on the show. But we're back at it because then we land in Fort Lauderdale. So I was, I was my ears were afflicted with Christmas music for 40 minutes getting to the airport. Then we get an Uber, and my colleague, one of our bosses, Maria, and I landed at almost the same time, same airport, same airline, but different flights, different cities. And we get an Uber, and it's like warm and sunny in Florida, very not Christmas vibes in any way, because it's November anyhow. And, of course, there's Christmas music on in that Uber as well. And as we're pulling up to the hotel, it's Mariah Carey. All I want for Christmas is you. And I said out loud, let the record reflect it is November the 16th. And this is my first session listening to this song of the season. It's far too soon. I actually like that song. Is it overplayed? Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) It's way overplayed. But it's a good song. I don't need it the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. I don't. So I tweeted that. So I'm not prepared for Christmas music. I'm not. Oh, I got so many replies. And then I decide to screenshot my own tweet and put it on my Instagram story. I've gotten probably a 100, maybe more responses already. Very polarized. A lot of people fully on board with me, people of taste, reasonable people, and then these Christmas barbarians who want to just run roughshod over Thanksgiving, right over the pilgrims and the Native Americans, just erase them. And go straight to Christmas. And I had people saying that they were, they were actually sending me Christmas stuff. And I said, where's the mute button? Because I, I will mute you. I will block you. So even though we have this debate every single year, 
whenever I even dip my toe into it, the response is enormous. So I was like, am I going to whine and complain about this on the home stretch? Yes, I am. In fact, a previous topic was thrown out, and this one was inserted. It's too soon. And now, here with the other perspective, as usual, she's wrong. It's producer Christine, who's with me in Florida. They let her in. Shocking, right? I know. You are so wrong. Here, here's the thing. We're not glazing over Thanksgiving. What happens is right after... Oh, excuse me. I have, I have a response that I want to give right now, but it's a separate topic that we're going to get to another day upcoming. But just if you're a regular listener, mm. I want you to remember that comment. Oh, we're not pushing past Thanksgiving. We're not... To, oh, we know. Christine loves Thanksgiving. You just wait until you hear what she is doing on Thanksgiving this year and what she's not doing on Thanksgiving this year. So I'm just flagging a current lie that will be exposed at a later date. But for the sake of argument, Christine, yes. you're going to pretend that you are not defiling the great American holiday of Thanksgiving. And continue, please. What happens is on November 1st, we start the Christmas season. And the Christmas music no. starts. No. Yes. Yes. It, I, it's just. It, it's just a known thing. No, I will no, give you. I will give you this on Thanksgiving Day. I will mute the Christmas music for that day. I don't, what? By the way, what music would you like played uh, on Thanksgiving? Do I would have- say a combination of classical music and classic rock. Classical music, like you want me to play, like Beethoven? Yeah, this is in the background. What, do, where do you th- you think I'm a person that's going to listen to classical music? The soundtrack of Thanksgiving is NFL football. That's what you want in the background. Football. You need some music, I, and I'll classic, you- fine. Classic rock. Okay, classic rock. That's okay. fine. Yeah. Um, Little uh, and then- Fleetwood Mac. Oh, now you're talking. Yeah. Wow, we agree on something. Well, that's weird. You're you're. You're clinging to something here because you know that everything else but then is listen, problematic. But then listen, uh, usually dinner – because you know you have an early dinner on Thanksgiving, you know, like 4 o'clock. Yeah, like mid-afternoon. Okay, by 8 o'clock, we're back on Christmas no. music. No, no, no. And nope. that's when a lot of times, like in my family – Oh, it's sad. The Christmas tree would come down, and then, you know, you decorate everything. I usually go a few Why weeks before. Why would the Christmas tree come down? From the attic. Oh, oh! From, I thought you're like you're taking it down. You're already past Christmas. You're on to Valentine's Day. It's, uh, it's dead. It's December first. Happy Valentine's Day. It's the season. Tis the season for Valentine's Day. This is established. I'm just saying it. With December twenty seventh. No, no, no. I will wait till. I'm sorry. January second is Valentine's Day. I can go through a whole calendar nope, with you of when. Let's but not anyway, do that. Um, it is completely fine to be listening to Christmas music. I think it's so festive. No. For some reason, my daughter agrees with you. She yeah, said, let's wait. She's eight years old, mind you. So Wise beyond her years. Mm, just she wait. Knows. Just wait until you hear what else oh, I know. she is pretty wise no, about. I know. I, I'm so eager <sighs> to spill the beans Don't. on this. Don't do I'm it. But I'm not going to do it. Uh, to me, the absolute earliest for Christmas stuff, Christmas music, decorations, is the day after Thanksgiving, the Friday. And we, I will give you a sneak preview, we are actually doing a slight Christmas pivot the Friday after Thanksgiving. It's the earliest I think I've ever done it. Why? Why so early? Because we have all of the family there at once, so we're going to do a little something. I think. Wait, I wasn't invited. That's correct. It's family and loved ones, okay? (laughs) Um, So... (laughs) 
So the Friday after Thanksgiving, we're going to do some things. I think the tree goes up Saturday, and we did get the Christmas lights up. My incentives for our guy worked. He ghosted us last year. Oh, it's, this is a story. We have to do. We're out of time. We, so much we've got to do this about. another day. But this fight is not over. <laughs> Back here tomorrow at the Patriot Awards, Hollywood, Florida. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will talk to you then. Have a great night, everyone. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.